Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've started on our Anxiety and Depression uh, Codex, which is a massive literature review to uncover as many treatments as possible for these conditions and associated ones. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Dr. Katherine Schmitz. Uh, she's the author of a book called Moving Through Cancer, an exercise and strength training program for the fight of your life. It's coming out uh, October 19th, so not sure where it's going to be available, but I'm sure Amazon and you know all the standard places. But uh, we're here to talk about it. So, Catherine, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you today. Yeah, unfortunately, my guess is no one writes a book like this unless you know they've been affected by cancer or they know one or more people that I have, but what, what's your story about how you came to write the book? Right. So I have been an exercise oncology researcher since 2000. So 21 years. So I, you know, I, I know of cancer and had been researching exercise and cancer for uh, decades, longer than a decade. When my then girlfriend, now wife, Sarah was diagnosed with stage three squamous cell carcinoma in, of all places, her nose. And she had a, a very, very aggressive cancer. They had to remove her entire nose. There has been a little bit of reconstruction and uh, they had to give her combined chemotherapy and radiation. And I have to tell you, it, it brought us to our knees. Um, it was the most difficult thing I have ever gone through in my life. Well, it's been five years as, as of October, uh, I think it was October 16th that we got the diagnosis. So I'm going to have five years. Yeah. So you, okay. So you already were for many years, uh, I guess, an exercise uh, expert for people. Uh, what is it called? Exercise oncologist is how you referred to it. Yes. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Is it at all clinical or is it all research or is it both? Or what's the, 
Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of both. And um, it depends on what country you're in. So there are countries in the world that appreciate and, and, you know, license exercise oncology professionals as clinicians. Uh, the United States doesn't happen to be one of those countries yet um, working on it. <laughs> but so, so I do research. And then in my own sort of thinking of things, I think I have a clinical practice of sorts. People get referred to me and, uh, and I talk to them and say, you know, here's, here's what the literature says. Here's, you know, the evidence base that uh, supports my recommendations to you. And, you know, at the end of it, I have to say, but, you know, go back to your oncologist and ask them if what I'm saying makes sense to them. So what's the main benefits of exercise in the context of cancer? Is it to slow down like muscle wasting, like sarcopenia or? You know, what is it or what are, what are the different benefits of it? Sure. So the benefits fall into a couple of categories. Um, the first one that most people in the population want to know about are the preventive benefits. So we have hundreds upon hundreds of really large epidemiologic studies that show us that exercise prevents the incidence of seven different common cancers and you can ask me which ones they are, and it's like naming the dwarves. You always forget one. So it's uh, breast and colon and endometrial and bladder, and not remembering them off the top of my head, but you can find that information on my website, movingforcancer.com. So the other benefits that I think are really, really important to bring up are for people who are currently undergoing treatment. And, and this one is sort of an interesting situation because, you know, the, the average person, when they think of someone going through cancer treatment, they think of someone with an IV in their arm with a blanket over their knees, and certainly they don't see them exercising and sweating. And, you know, we have a real problem with the culture of cancer in our country and outside the U.S. as well, that um, people, you know, think cancer means rest and taking it easy and not to push themselves when in fact, being physically active as you go through cancer has a number of benefits that could make a difference in the success of your cancer treatment, including effects on anxiety and depression, which alter your uh, immune system and the ability to respond to treatment. It alters breast cancer-related lymphedema, physical function, which is uh, your ability to you know, carry things into your house after you purchase them or carry your children. Uh, it alters uh, cancer-related fatigue, uh, which is a difficult thing to explain to people because when you're feeling a lot of fatigue, the last thing you want to do is exercise. And in fact, the very best thing for you, the number one recommended treatment for cancer-related fatigue is physical activity. It's also good for bone health and really importantly, really good for sleep. So sleep is something that gets disturbed in a, in a good proportion of cancer treatment. I would think well, I had cancer four years ago, but it was thyroid cancer, but I'm pretty sure I thought at some points, if I exercise, am I just maybe spreading the cancer around my body through circulation, which I know you you have circulation anyway, otherwise you'd be dead. But I don't know. I mean, I would think that I would guess a lot of people with cancer are afraid to exercise for various reasons. Yes. And I think that, that what you just stated is a common uh, myth. Um, and so let me explain to you that there is actually evidence that if you are more physically active as you're going through your treatment, that very likely that if we think about the, the tumor itself and where the tumor is, you know, all body tissues require blood vessels 
and the blood vessels around tumors are very immature and they don't do a very good job of delivering blood to the tumor. The tumor is, is altered so that it can live in that hypoxic environment. And it also means that it's difficult to get chemotherapy to the drug. It's difficult to deliver drugs to the tumor in order to fight the tumor. And so we know that exercise improves tumor vasculature, making it easier for chemotherapy to get to the drug. So it's actually kind of the opposite. What's interesting about what what you just said as well is that there is historical precedent for this kind of fear. So let me tell you a story for a second. So back in the 1950s, then President Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack and he was uh, kept in bed for three weeks after his heart attack. And his cardiologist was sharply, sharply criticized for getting him out of bed so soon. Because back then, we believed that if you had a heart attack, then you needed to be very careful about how much you moved around for the rest of your life. What we all now know, pretty much anybody with an eighth grade education in the U.S. knows, is that exercise is outstanding for the heart. That in fact, if you've had a heart attack, you should be exercising. We now do something called cardiac rehabilitation in order to improve the capacity of that damaged body system, the heart, to be able to do work. But we used to be afraid. In fact, I know that cardiac nurses were terrified at the beginning of the time when we started doing exercise for heart patients. They were terrified that these patients were going to come back in a body bag. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I literally heard that quote So from a cardiac nurse from that era. So we had to change the culture of heart disease in order to get exercise to be a part of treatment for heart disease. We had to do the same thing for exercise during pregnancy. We had to do the same thing for exercise and back pain. It used to be that we told people rest for back pain. Turns out that was the worst thing in the world for them. What we need now is to change the culture of cancer so that people who are at risk for and have cancer are dealing with cancer treatment and have survived cancer understand the very, very best thing they could do for themselves to improve their response to treatment and extend the, the quality and, and length of their life is to be more physically active. I would think some people that have cancer also would think like, oh no, if I exercise, I could really hurt myself because I need to use all my reserves to fight the cancer or my body is now weakened from it or it's weakened right. from the chemo and I, you know, I'm going to really hurt myself, or et cetera. You are bringing up the greatest hits, man. Thank you for these softballs. So- well, it's not even softballs. It's how uh, Kind of have yeah. a little bit of experience, a little bit. Yeah, you do. You do. People, you but. do have experience. And so you understand exactly. And these, but these are like, these are so important questions. So, 
So the, the thing is that, you know, what we know is that the tissues of the body that help us to get around and do what we need to do, our function, you know, our muscle and, you know, connective tissue is use it or lose it tissue. And so if you walk into cancer with a, I'm going to put it in a number thing just to, just to, to, to be able to talk about it. Let's say that your capacity walking in is a 40 and it takes 20 just to get through your day. And it takes 20 to do the cancer treatments. You are going to feel like you have nothing left at the end of the day, right? Absolutely nothing left. So how are you supposed to get any, any movement done? You have to really push in order to do that, right? And that's hard. And I understand that. And I know that it's really hard. But by the same token, if you don't do any movement, if you start to be completely sedentary as you go through your treatment, the guarantee is that your capacity by the time you finish cancer treatment is lower. Maybe your capacity by the time you get done with your cancer treatment is 20, which is the sum total of what you need just to get through your day. So you are really, really pushing just to get through your day. In fact, you probably have to back off on just your, your you know, daily activities just to function after you get done with your cancer treatment. Whereas if you do push a little bit, just take a walk every once in a while, five minutes here and there, stand up and sway back and forth while you're watching the TV commercials. Uh, I, you know, here's, here's the thing. Nobody really benefits from sitting down all day. Nobody benefits from that. We don't let ICU patients do that. They move them. They move ICU patients. So cancer patients certainly need to move at the same time. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So within exercise, do the protocols look the same for healthy people? Like do it to your ability, but not too hard. Do it X times a week, et cetera. What's it look like? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so... The recommendation for what you should do, you know, in your when you get to the point of cancer survivorship, um, you're done with your treatment and you've recovered from sort of the acute effects of, of treatment looks exactly like what a normal healthy person should do. Um, and the recommendation there is to do, if you're doing vigorous aerobic exercise, then it's 75 to 150 minutes a week. If you're doing moderate intensity like walking exercise, it's more like 150 to 300 minutes a week and then twice weekly strength training. Um, but during cancer treatment, the recommendation is lower because we recognize that you're going to have good days and bad days. And there are going to be days when you're, there is just no way um, that any exercise is going to happen. On those days, we still recommend you get up and try to walk a little bit. Um, but because you're, like I said, nobody benefits from, you know, lying down all day. Nobody does, but we recommend, uh, three times a week of aerobic exercise and twice a week of strength training, um, for people who are currently undergoing treatment. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned that there was, it was good for, I don't know, it was shown to affect seven cancers, but there's hundreds of them. Yeah. Why, why only seven is it? Because the other ones are more rare. No, it's probably, you know, the, the truth is that it probably has a protective effect for, for most can- types of cancer, you know, with the exception of the ones that are likely caused by, you know, inborn mutations like the BRCA mutations or um, Leifromini syndrome or APC or, you know, some of the other inborn syndromes. 
But, you know, for, for most cancers, the majority of cancers, uh, being more physically active is probably associated with reduced risk. It's just that in order to do the studies to, um, to see those effects, we have to have enough people with that develop those cancers, right? And for the more rare cancers, we just don't have the evidence yet. So but each type of cancer has to be uh, retested to make sure that exercise helps it? Every single one, because we want to make sure that we're looking, you know, it, it could well be if we look at cancer overall, that we're looking at kind of a mishmash because the reasons that you develop thyroid cancer are very, very different than the reasons you develop breast cancer. And so we look at them all as individual diseases. I mean, no one seems to put forth any reason. It seems to be all random mutations. I haven't heard of anyone really come up with, you know, except for exposure to chemicals, exposure to, you know, radiation and chance from uh, mutations. But I haven't heard anyone really say, oh, this cancer becomes because of this, this one because of that. So, I mean, it seems like the medical community still treats it as a single condition. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, the medical community, if you go look, the, one of the major uh, medical organizations in the U.S. is the Nas- National Comprehensive Cancer Network. It is a very powerful organization of 40 plus different organizations that come together to say, here is how you should treat cancer. And the guidelines are extremely specific to cancer type. And uh, the reason for that is that the way that you would treat bladder cancer, uh, for example, is uh, extremely distinct from the way that you would treat, say, thyroid cancer. And you can't uh, make assumptions that, um, that a treatment for one disease even <laughs> what's funny is that, you know, it's not even breast cancer. It's not a single cancer. It's actually hundreds of different types of cancer. Um, so breast cancer is a multiple different types of cancer. So, and, and as to the, you know, why is it happening? One of the reasons why it's, it's difficult for researchers and clinicians to tell you why you develop cancer is that it is such a complex disease. There are some initial precipitating factors that we know are important in a small subset of cancers, but then really it's a matter of um, failures at <laughs> hundreds of different steps in the body. And, you know, that is affected by uh, as well by epigenetic factors or what we might call tumor microenvironment factors that are very heavily influenced by uh, lifestyle and uh, you know, the likelihood that growth factors are in place that will precipitate the growth of a tumor versus not is really different in somebody who is obese or a smoker, physically inactive, has a poor diet than somebody who has or and drinks alcohol um, than someone who um, abstains from alcohol and, and smoking, has a healthy body weight. Those are not reasons to say that, you know, somebody who is overweight that they caused their cancer, but there are precipitating factors. There are contributing factors. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I just, right. everyone's unique and their circumstances unique. So what, um, when you study exercise and a particular type of cancer, what are you looking for? Like, what's your matrix look like? I would guess after associating it with at least seven types of cancer that you have, you know, or there is uh, some kind of matrix to start from. Right. So one of the things that I am doing right now, I'm working with two colleagues on 
a textbook, an undergraduate textbook called Essentials of Exercise and Ecology. And uh, so I'm, I happen to be writing the cancer biology chapter right now. And so, um, you know, what I can tell you is that, you know, cancer biology is exceedingly complex. And, you know, I think that, you know, researchers in the field of exercise oncology uh, are, you know, constantly on the lookout for signaling pathways and, you know, growth factors that are uh, likely to be altered by someone being more physically active, uh, likely to be altered by increasing lean mass or any of the common effects that we have uh, for exercise training. And, uh, and so, you know, the biologic effects of exercise on the growth of cancers and the progression of cancers is, is one track. It is one of two tracks of research right now in the field of exercise oncology. The other track um, is, is also equally important, and that is um, the implementation track. And what I mean by that is that despite the fact that, yes, there is more to learn, we know enough to know that patients should be more physically active. And yet the uh, majority of cancer patients and survivors are not regularly physically active. And one of the reasons they're not regularly physically active is that they aren't counseled to do so by their clinicians. And so one of the questions that I'm particularly interested in is, well, how do we get clinicians how do we change the clinical enterprise so that it is easier for uh, clinicians, nurses, social workers to be able to screen people to see if it is safe for them to exercise and to advise them to exercise? So that is a major focus of my lab at this time. When you say exercise, what does that look like? I mean, I know it's not powerlifting, but is it a little bit of weights? Is it slow walks? Is it, uh, what's it look like? Sure. So during treatment, what we recommend is, is three times a week of something of the intensity of walking and twice weekly strength training. And when we say weight training, you know, really our, our efforts are to try to make it as easy as possible for people to participate. And so, you know, grabbing a couple of cans of beans and uh, doing some exercises. There are videos that are available online. In a variety of places, including my own website, movingthroughcancer.com, and you know, increasing the amount of weight that you use by using water bottles and adding more water to the water bottle is a you know a, a cheap and easy way to do resistance work at home. So, are there? I mean, eventually, will there be or are there personal trainers that are specialists where they can add this specialty of uh, oncology-based training or something? Yes, actually, there is a certification um, available through the American College of Sports Medicine called a cancer exercise trainer. And folks with that certification can lead cancer patients um, and survivors safely and effectively through, uh, you know, learning how to do a workout and then you can do it on your own or doing it in a personal training setting. My, my professional goal is that eventually we should be covering this, you know, through third-party payers, through insurance, at least for the counseling portion of it. I could see this again as a designation for people. Okay, so the exercise protocols, how much do they vary with age and with the types of cancers? You know, what kind of variations do you see? Right. So generally speaking, when we make recommendations for people undergoing treatment, we, we set the bar low. Uh, we do recognize that, you know, we have, you know, cancer patients that are everything from, you know, the 85-year-old 
woman with breast cancer to, you know, the Olympic gold medalist cross-country skier, Keegan Randall, who had breast cancer at 33, you know, and everything in between. So, you know, what are we trying to, you know, how do we recommend? It's one of the reasons why we think it would be really, really useful to have, you know, not just certification, but licensure of uh, exercise professionals who could do the appropriate screening and, um, you know, do sort of initial assessments in order to be able to personalize an exercise program for everyone, you know, meeting people kind of where they are. Yeah, no, it makes sense. What differences do you see amongst the cancers in terms of the exercise protocol? I mean, regardless of the person's ability, are there, uh, 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 is it I the see. cancer that makes the protocol it's unique? The treatment. It's the treatment. Okay. That's the thing. It's not actually the cancer, it's the treatment. So, you know, for example, you know, if somebody, you know, needs to undergo a lot of or a number of sessions of radiation treatment, we know that radiation is, although it's a local treatment, it has systemic effects, particularly fatigue, you know, sort of debilitating and, and increasing fatigue. Um, and we know that it increases the likelihood of infection. There's, you know, the ability to fight off infections is, is altered during radiation treatments. And so, you know, we're not going to put somebody in the pool while they're undergoing radiation treatments. We know that we're going to be focusing on aerobic exercise in order to address the cancer-related fatigue in order to reduce cytokines that are increased during radiation. Meanwhile, if we're dealing with somebody who is undergoing, uh, who is, is recovering from a big surgery, and that was their major treatment, then we're trying to build lean mass and, you know, to the extent that their, you know, sutures are closed, we are really working on a, a focus on uh, increasing lean mass by focusing on strength training. So it's really about the type of treatment um, as opposed to the type of cancer. Any nuances that jump out at you about the treatment that, uh, you know, do this for this one, but don't do this for this one? Any mm-hmm. like examples that you can point mm-hmm. out? So a couple, one, there is possibility of, you know, if you are doing a combined uh, program of chemotherapy and radiation, which is, you know, what my, my wife, Sarah had to go through, um, then, you know, strongly recommend that you keep up the aerobic activity uh, and give the resistance training a pass for that short period of time in order to keep yourself from sinking into the really, really bad places of of fatigue and anxiety. If you're going through chemotherapy, there is a fairly strong recommendation that you keep your resistance training going so that you keep your muscle mass up um, because there is an association of loss of muscle mass as people are undergoing chemotherapy. But during chemotherapy, there's also a problem of cancer-related fatigue because of those increased cytokines. So that's why we recommend a combination uh, intervention of uh, aerobic activity plus twice weekly strength training for people undergoing chemotherapy. And, and you know, as I said, you know, prior to actually and after uh, surgery, the recommendation is that you are building lean mass as much as you can. So that's a strength training program. Well, I just realized though, potential big problem is uh, nutrition, you know, because I, my mom passed away last year from cancer, but I remember in the infusion center, they're like, oh, eat, eat ice cream, eat donuts here, have mm-hmm. whatever you want. And if someone's exercising, great. But if they're eating garbage, mm-hmm. either because they're told it's okay or, you know, 10 other reasons, like it would make the training, I would think, maybe not nearly as effective. And 
But yet, if you try to go into the nutritional angle, now all of a sudden, you know, you're entering territory that it seems like it would be difficult enough to carve out the exercise territory and work with all the other professionals that, you know, help people with cancer. But again, if you try to do the nutrition stuff too, now what do you do? But it's it's quite necessary. So, well, yeah. So the, the thing is, we actually have a great deal more specificity in the literature, in the peer reviewed literature that tells us what we can and should do for exercise during uh, cancer treatments than we do for nutrition. And, um, you know, nutrition is extremely complex. And if you go look at the peer reviewed literature and I, you know, the chapter in my book on nutrition, uh, we had help from um, Cindy Thompson, who's University of Arizona oncology nutritionist and brilliant scientist and clinician. And, you know, she says as well as I do, that um, the primary thing that we need to focus on for people as they're going through their treatment is protein. So we need to get people to eat more protein because generally speaking, people lose lean mass as they go through cancer treatment. So if you can get somebody to take in more protein, whether that's through some kind of supplement or through, you know, I mean, in an idealized world, you're, you know, making perfect steaks and, and lean meats, right? That may not be appetizing, you know, depending on how, your taste buds are affected by treatment. And so uh, taking in um, high quality protein, whether it's in a supplement form or in food form, is recommended. Staying hydrated is recommended. There's a load of tips that are available for the fact that, you know, in big difference between um, talking about nutrition and talking about exercise during cancer treatment is that you have to eat and you, you don't actually have to exercise. You can like survive getting through cancer treatment and not exercising, but you can't not eat, right? So uh, my book does have a chapter on nutrition and does include a whole host of tips about nutrition, things things to help you with just kind of getting through the process of getting through treatment. And, you know, but we recognize that there is a lot of uh, variability in what's available to people as they, as they go through their cancer treatments. Not everybody has access to a cancer nutritionist, and there's a lot of misinformation that's out there on on the web. So I'll commend your listeners to the American Institute for Cancer Research as an organization that uh, puts out really high quality, easily digested information about nutrition and cancer. Okay. So you don't have to tackle it all yourself. That's, That's good. Yeah, you're doing a lot, but there's only so much, you know. So what new things are you researching about uh, exercise and cancer? Is it now getting it to the other types of cancers that it's not applied for? Or is it more refining what you already know? Actually, the biggest study that I'm doing right now has to do with embedding exercise within a tablet based supportive care platform for metastatic uh, for advanced cancer patients, not just metastatic, but advanced cancer patients of all types in the rural setting. And this falls into that implementation science uh, issue that I mentioned before in that, you know, uh, we have evidence that shows that if you ask patients about their symptoms, advanced cancer patients about their symptoms, and you address them, including exercise advice, uh, that they survive longer. Ta-da, how about that? But that evidence comes from um, cancer centers that are exceedingly well staffed. And so the question that I have is, okay, well, how do you offer that to people who live in the rural setting and do not have access to a place like, say, MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering? 
how do you deliver that in the setting of rural Pennsylvania and West Virginia? And so we have developed a tablet-based supportive care platform called Nurse Amy. And uh, Nurse Amy is, is to be delivered to um, hundreds of rural cancer patients so that we can see whether addressing their symptoms has a similar survival benefit. And of course, the tablet-based supportive care platform includes an exercise program. Oh, that's great. I don't know if you could assign just percentage improvement that your protocol helps people, you know, that have cancer, but can you, like, if you try to boil it down to just a couple of metrics, what does that look like? So the metrics actually from the epidemiologic evidence of the benefit of exercise for preventing recurrence of breast and colon cancer is phenomenal. It's on the order of 40%. So it's not to be sneezed at. It is, you know, an important change. Now, how effective is it during treatment? That's an excellent question. That one actually is the subject of, of ongoing trials that I'm working on right now. You know, that's, that's, a, a, that's a, a next generation question, if you will. But the effects for prevention of recurrence and survival are phenomenal for the most common cancers. Yeah, that's great. It well, is. then it'll, le- it'll lessen, the, I mean, just knowing that you know, would lessen people's fear tremendously because, you know, once they get over it, if they do, and it goes into the into remission, they, that's the next fear, unfortunately, is like that's every right. day was going to come back, is going to come back, you know. That's right. And, you know, there is nothing in the world that you could do that would better prepare you on the, on the horrible chance that it does come back than being, being physically fit um, because it is, you know, being the shape of your life for the fight of your life. What, I mean, unfortunately, not, you know, a lot of people still do succumb, but what does the exercise program look like as someone, again, gets to higher stages or as they progress and, you know, it doesn't go away? Right. So for advanced cancer on. patients and metastatic patients. So uh, for the advanced patient, before you get to the point of metastasis, we stick with the three times a week aerobic and twice weekly strength training. But when we get into the metastatic setting, it depends on uh, where those metastases are. And so uh, what we worry about most are bone metastases and the potential for a bone break as a result of being uh, physically active or especially doing strength training. So the recommendation at this point is that uh, people, even with bone mats, are regularly physically active. And uh, we do recommend uh, resistance training. But if you have lower body uh, metastases, we recommend that the uh, resistance training be done in a seated position. And if you have them in the spine, that you avoid twisting motions. And uh, we alter the types of exercises very specifically according to where the metastases in the bone are in the upper body. So that's very highly individual. Is the, um, is the exercise protocol lifting weights or walking, or is it also include like yoga or Tai Chi or things like that, or is that too expansive for it? Right. So, uh, so the two answers, one is that the current uh, expert guideline recommendations from the American College of Sports Medicine include aerobic exercise and resistance training for people during and after their cancer treatment, including advanced cancer patients. But uh, you've asked about alternative ways of being physically active. And there's, there's a, a couple of things to say there. The first thing to say is that the evidence base the scientific evidence base is not as strong for those other types of, of exercise. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not useful. That means that we just don't, I can't hang my hat on it as much um, as a scientist, right? 
That said, if your favorite thing to do for physical activity is strength to do that, is yoga or is Tai Chi or Qigong or one of these alternate or Pilates or some other type of exercise, um, and that's what you like and that's what you'll do, please do it. Please don't stop doing it because I didn't say that it was useful. It's, you know, it's very useful. We just don't have the science to back it up the same way that we do with aerobic and resistance training exercise. And then if someone's out of shape and then, you know, they get cancer and then they have to start any, some exercise protocol, how does that look different in terms of outcomes and everything versus someone that's already exercising? They get cancer. They just need to keep doing what they did with a little modification. Right. So the amazing news is that the benefits of exercise are most compelling for people going uh, from nothing to something. So what we know is that the physiologic changes that occur in the body as a result of becoming more physically active, starting from scratch, starting from total couch potato are really phenomenal. And that's just for doing, you know, up to even just 10 minutes a day of walking. So the, the idea in starting from scratch is to do something. If you're starting with five minutes a day of walking, fantastic. Start with that double it the following week, you know, add five minutes every week until you get yourself to walking 30 minutes most days. So, you know, that's, that's the great news. The great news is that there is tremendous benefit for those who have not been doing anything. Oh, good. I didn't know if it was very different for the, you know, the two groups, but that's, that's excellent. So what's, um, you might've answered this in parts or in full, but what lies ahead now? I want to focus on that for a minute or two, you know, in your research, like what, can you recap some of the Sure. The things you're working on and what do you think like what do you think um this exercise protocol will look like in the next five years will it cover more cancers or will it be more detailed and more situation specific or what will it look like you think where is it headed <laughs> yeah okay so so i think that um that the field has really uh bifurcated we've gone in two directions at once i think and so i'll so i'll answer your question from both both of those parts of the field one direction the field has gone is into uh, personalized medicine and, you know, really trying to understand for a given tumor, for a given person, you know, starting at a certain fitness level with particular tumor markers, you know, what particular exercise program is necessary in order to potentiate the likelihood of your particular, you know, uh, treatment to have its effects. So I think that we are in you know, phase zero, phase one trials for that kind of very, very, very precise, you know, exercise oncology trials. And there are labs around the country that are focused in that direction, that are particularly interested in the potential for exercise to, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, one of the problems we have right now with cancer treatment is tumors becoming resistant to a particular type of treatment. And there is tremendous interest in the potential for exercise to stave off that resistance uh, by altering the tumor microenvironment in a way that helps drugs to do their job. So, um, so that's, that's a direction that I think we're going and I think we'll get more and more personalized in our exercise prescriptions from that portion of the field. The other portion of the field is saying, Hey, we need every single cancer patient to have a, there needs to be some kind of initial screening and evaluation and recommendation for every single cancer patient as they're going through their cancer treatment and afterwards. 
And, you know, as I said, this is the field of implementation science. So, you know, what I like in this too, is this situation in the field with these two different tracks is, you know, we don't stop looking for new chemotherapy drugs if we have chemotherapy drugs that are working, right? So we make sure that we deliver the chemotherapy drugs that are the best that we have right now. And we keep looking for better chemo drugs. And so in the field of exercise oncology, we have these two different areas. One area is how do we best deliver the drug that we have right now, which is we know that exercise is helpful for fatigue and anxiety and depression, bone health, sleep, function, lymphedema, all of these outcomes, reduces likelihood of recurrence, all of, all of these things, all of these important outcomes. We know this. We already have this information. How do we make it happen? right? That's one phase or area of research. And that's, that's where my work is. And then the other area of work is how do we get more personalized? How do we figure out exactly what the really the best exercise is for you, Richard Jacobs? How do we figure out the best treatment for my brother, John, who's dealing with a blood cancer? How do we deal with Sarah's very particular head and neck cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where the field is going. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out uh, more about your protocols? Where where can they go? Uh, they can go to my website. They can also pre-order my book um, at the website. Website is movingthroughcancer.com. It was intended not just to sell you the book, which I hope you'll buy, but uh, also to guide you through exercise protocols for a variety of different timelines throughout treatments, as well as focusing on a number of different tumor types and what happens in those particular tumor types and how they get treated. Well, I encourage all listeners, uh, if, if they have the need or know someone that has the need to, uh, to check out the book. And Catherine, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.